there are times in your life when you feel like you really need a clear, directing word from the Lord in making a decision. And then you get none. What do you do when you get no visions and you have no dreams and no one says, this is what you do because this is what God wants you to do? There is a whole realm of decisions that God has given to us that are significant, that are important, and he trusts us to take the principles of God and apply them and use our brain, figure it out. And it's in those moments when we are most scared, because they are important indeed. I want to share with you a story where that happens to Abraham. Up to this point, we've seen Abraham, he's had visions He's had dreams, he has angelic visitors, he's had God himself in pre-incarnate form talking to him. You've had every imaginable way that you could ever dream and want to have the directing hand of the Lord. But when it comes time to whom his son would marry, you have no vision, you have no angel, you have no Jesus coming and eating with him. In fact, when we read the chapter that we're about to look at, you really there is no mention of what God says. There is the evidence of God's working, but there is nowhere where it says God said to Abraham, this is what you must do and this is whom you must marry. And so we're going to look at this story. It's found in Genesis chapter 24. It is the longest chapter in the Bible of Genesis, rather in the book of Genesis, uh, 67 verses that deals with the situation of making a decision. When there is no clear directing hand, how do we learn from this? When we're in a situation like that, how do we, what are the principles we live by? I think we're going to find a few here on this, uh, this story. But as well, as you can imagine, if, because it is about finding uh, a mate for his son Isaac, there are a lot of good lessons for folks who are in that stage of life trying to find someone to marry. Uh, I know that may be a handful of you here. Uh, if you have a daughter or a son that's working in the nursery or something, they haven't been in here, go get them. Let them be in here. Take their place. Uh, this is the type of passage that they need to, to hear. But as well for those of us who are married already, uh, I would just present to you that in the way that you seek a marriage is also the way you maintain a marriage. And you're going to find that there's still some good lessons and And many of us, we may have forgotten what it took to to gain our husband or wife. And I would just implore you to go back to those same things, uh, as we'll see in this passage. And just so you know, if you are married, you've got the right one. All right? Don't look anymore. When you said, I do, lo and behold, that was the one God made for you right there. Okay? So just... Uh, Go with it and and, and don't take uh, an extra interest in this passage and say, okay, let's look again. No, all right? That's that's taken care of. Um, But I think that you'll see some things that will also apply to you. Now, uh, because it is 67 verses, um, I'm just going to ask that you keep a Bible open. We're not going to read it all at one time and stand as we do so. I don't think some of you would make it through uh, and standing. So uh, just uh, keep your place there. I'm going to be referring it, referring to it as we go, uh, as we read the story. It's a wonderful story, a lovely story. It's a, it's a love story, 
Uh, but it's, uh, guys, I, I promise you, you won't be, uh, you won't be bored with this love story. There'll be some interesting things to go with this as well. And so let's get right to verse one. It says, Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Just so you know, Abraham is about 140 at this point. So yes, he is old. Uh, his wife just died in the previous chapter, and so he is thinking now it could happen any moment. He has no promise how long he'll live. In fact, we find in the story, he lives another 35 years, uh, dying at 175. He doesn't know that, though, and so he's just making sure that all the loose ends are taken care of uh, in case he does die. And so one of the things that crosses his mind is, you know, my son's not married. Just for you guys to do the math, this would place his son Isaac at the young age of 40, all right? Uh, and so uh, a lot of times we think, well, you know, that's way too old. But no, you know, Isaac is, is getting married at this point at the age of 40. And so Abraham said to the oldest servant in his house who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife or my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. This servant is probably Eleazar, uh, who would have been the heir had not Isaac or Ishmael been born, or the other sons that we find out about later. Uh, and so this is someone that's been around for a while. Now, this is a very serious oath in verse 2. Uh, we find that he actually executes this in verse 9. Uh, it is not the level of an oath like you had between God and Abraham where they cut the animals in two uh, to signify that covenant. But nonetheless, it's serious. So in fact, we find one other place where this is done in Genesis chapter 49 between Jacob as he is dying with his son Joseph. So it seems to be, as far as we know, something tied with old age and vows that are made on their, uh, as they're thinking toward their death bed. Uh, not much is known about this. Uh, but uh, is a uh, euphemism when it says that, uh, uh, put your hand under my thigh, that's an euphemism. And uh, you can imagine what's being done there. Uh, and, and essentially is kind of saying, may the, the prosperity, my prosperity, my, the seed of my line come and I'll lay vengeance against you if you don't do this. And so, uh, you know, that's a serious oath. <laughs> Here in America, Handshake will do, all right? We'll just, we'll just stick with that, okay? But nonetheless, that seems to be the custom here. Uh, and so uh, he says to them, he, he makes a, a, a charge to the servant. He says, I want you to go and uh, go to my country, go to my home, my family, take a wife for my son. Now, this is a, a thinking servant, and he said, well, what if, in verse 5, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land? Must I take your son back to land from, when, from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, To your descendants I give this land. He will send his angel before you, and he shall take a wife for my son from there. And if this woman is not willing to follow you, then you are released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. The first principle that we will learn about this in making decisions is simply this. Don't allow relationships to compromise your obedience. Don't allow relationships to compromise your obedience. In this story, there are two ways that could happen. First, he says, in who you relate to 
and regards as a spouse for my son. He says, I want you to go back to my homeland. Do not go to the people of here. I do not want my son to marry a Canaanite person. Now, why did he think that? Well, Genesis 15, 16 says, but in the fourth generation, God says to Abraham, they shall return here. He's referring to his descendants who would come after him. He says, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What God told him in Genesis 15, 16 is that the people of this land will grow worse and worse in their sin until God says it's enough. So he knows about this land, about what will happen to the people of this land. And so he makes a a statement. Don't marry one of these people. Okay, so it is evident that who you relate with can put you in a place of compromise in your obedience. We find the New Testament equivalent to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 and 16. It says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In regards to relationships, if you're looking for a mate to marry, make sure you're marrying someone of like faith, that you are a believer together, is the point of that passage. But I would also say that it's not necessarily restricted in marriage. It could be also, guys or ladies, in business relationships as well. If there is a close, intimate business relationship, you might want to consider this as well, of what this means to be tied together uh, in other relationships, not just in marriage. And so there's the compromise of, of who you will uh, marry and who you will be tied to, but there's also another type of compromise and that the servant alludes to here. There is the compromise of being with a person who brings you down the wrong path. They could be a believer, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going the same direction you are. And so he says, he says, what if you're in a relationship or what if there's a lady that won't move here and wants Isaac to move there? What should we do? Abraham said it'd be better for him not to marry than for him to go back to Ur. Why is that? Well, because God had called Abraham out of Ur. He told him that Canaan would be the land of the descendants. It's where his tribe is to be. It's where his people will be. And so that was a clear direction of the word of God. And so he says, if he goes back to Ur, it will be a compromise in obeying God. Friends, you could get in a relationship where you may have all the, all the uh, you know, they, they meet the requirements that they're a believer, they go to church, they're doing all these things. But you find the direction of their life and the requirements and the expectations they put on you puts you in a place of compromise where you're, your your conscience is is just uh, provoked and you feel guilty because you're doing things that you know you ought not to be doing. Friends, that also, though they may meet the qualifications of, of being a believer of the same faith, they are pushing you away from obedience to God. And Abraham's attitude is, you know what? It's better not even get in a relationship like that. Let's just not do that. And so... The first principle, if you want to know God's direction in specific manners, you've got to know and be obedient in general manners. And the general direction is this, is that make sure that you pursue relationships, if you're looking at marriage, that are of, of the same faith. Not only of the, are they of the same faith, they're of the same direction. They're not pushing you to do things you know from the Word of God that you ought not to be doing. And that also includes 
our business relationships as well. And so he says, all right, that's the way it's going to be. But let me just ask you this. How did Abraham know to get married for Isaac or to have his, you know, to, to go this manner? I mean, I don't have anywhere in the scripture where it says God said, do this, Abraham. Send your servant away and, and I will take care of this. All we know is that he came up with this idea. How is it that Abraham came up with this idea? All we know is that he's operating on some general biblical principles. And that would be the second lesson that we learn from this. When we're wanting a specific word from God in an ambiguous situation, you need to know that you must be living in the sphere of biblical principles. Living in the sphere of biblical principles. What do I mean by that? Well, we do know that Abram is aware that there will be descendants that come from Isaac. How do you have descendants unless you're married? Okay, So he knows that it's required from him uh, to have uh, a family. In fact, uh, Genesis 18, 19, God told him uh, that his children uh, are going to keep the way of the Lord. Are they ought to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, and to teach their children to do so? And so he knows from Genesis 18, 19, from a prior revelation from the Lord, that there will be children together. He knows from Genesis chapter 12 that he is to be in the land of Canaan, not in the land of Ur. He takes these two principles, trajectories together and says, you know what? I think that we need to find a wife for Isaac. He said, well, you know, you know, how do you know? Did you get a, did you read, get a Bible verse from this or did you get a, a vision? Did an angel tell you this, Abraham? No. I know what God has previously told me and I'm just making some conclusions based on on those principles. Now, there will be times when we step out risky. Sometimes we don't want to do something unless we know and have guaranteed success from God. But here's the, here's the reality. We don't always have that, guys. We don't always get that. Notice what Abraham's perspective is. There was a confidence, but also there was an allowance that it may not bear fruit. Here's the confidence. This is Servant, you go do this. You go to Ur, you do this. An angel will go before you. How about that? That's, that's pretty good confidence right there. He knows that he's in the principles of God. He says, I'm under God's direction. I'm not violating God's clear principles. And so I trust in God's provision and protection. But then he also says to the servant, if it doesn't work out for you, then you're released from this oath. Isn't that interesting? There's confidence, but at the same time, he understands God may not work out in this. What that tells us is that there will be moments and times where we won't have guaranteed success, but if we are following the principles of God, we know we have God's provision and protection with us. It remains to be seen whether God will clearly direct in this. But we're living in the biblical sphere. Now, what's important in all this? You've got to know biblical principles. You've got to know the word of God. If you do not know the God, word of God generally and obey the word of God generally, do not expect to get specific direction from God. So that's why I teach verse by verse. You know, I teach things I wouldn't normally teach. Last week I, I te- preached on Abraham buying land for a burial plot. I promise you I never would have picked that out. But nonetheless, 
You learn from these things, and you learn principles from these things, and that's why you study the Word of God, and you're going to do so on your own. So when that moment comes, and the split decision is made, and you're thinking, I don't know if this is, I wish I could just pray about this, I wish I could have a vision, I wish I could have angelic, angelic messages, you don't always get that. But if you are continuing in the Word of God and being obedient to the Word of God, when the split decisions have to be made, well, you're going in the right direction. You're going in the right direction. And that's what you have here in Abraham. This is an important decision. And we're talking about marriage here. But nonetheless, this is how he's operating. He's, he's, not, he's not allowing any relationships to compromise his obedience to, to God or to Isaac's obedience to God. And he's living in the sphere of, of biblical principles. And so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this master. All right, now this story gets interesting. Verse here, verse 10. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's good were in his hands. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. Nahor being Abraham's brother, a whole city named after him. It ought to be a good place to find his family. Now, it says it very quickly, but you need to know something. This little journey, hundreds of miles, several months. All right? It doesn't give us any of that. It just fast forwards, verse 11, bam, he's there. And we're thankful for that. He says he made his camels nil down outside the city by a well of water at evening time. The time when water go out, uh, women when when women go out to draw water. Now, uh, let me just give you a word of advice here. If you're seeking a mate, you need to go where the right type of person is at. All right. If you're thinking, you know, I really want, I really want to marry someone, and you're going to nightclubs. Bars to try to find that person. I'm just going to tell you, you're making a mistake. You're making a mistake. You may happen and stumble across somebody. uh, But thank God if you do. Because that was really rare. You go where the people are at. The right type of people. They didn't have e-harmony back then. You know, Uh, They didn't have these things. They have wells. Okay? That's where you go. Wells are like the uh, ancient mall, all right, where, you, where ladies go to reconnect and uh, check out all the items. Fortunately, in the wells for the men back then, there was no way to spend money at the well. And so it was a great, great place for the guys uh, because the ladies could go there, reconnect, and they're not buying anything, all right? Uh, but nonetheless, there were, this is a, a daily activity. It's part of what they did back then. Uh, life requires water, and so they were there. And so he goes there. Now... We're going to learn some important things. Go to the right type of place. Uh, we're not going to look for family, all right? But that's what he does. Uh, and so, notice verse 12. He, we see the wisdom. We see the wisdom of this man. This is not just some fool. Can you imagine the, the charge here? I mean, it's your job to find the wife for the blessed only son of Abraham. I mean, this is the one that God said that through his line, all the world would be blessed. Marriage is critical here. <laughs> and, and the master's got to live with Isaac as well. Talking about pressure. How would you find a mate for your master? You could, you know, a good logical conclusion would be maybe go to the leaders of, of, of this place, of Nahor, and say, hey, you know, we need to get the best ladies, the most eligible ladies, and let's get them all together, and let's have Miss Mesopotamia, all right? Uh, let's just have a little pageant here. Or, or maybe let's just have, like, The Bachelor, and, 
and uh, let's have him working with all these folks and see who's, who's the best one to interact. That's not what he does. We're about to see the wisdom of this man. And, and this gives us a good, a, a good instruction. When we are in ambiguous situations but we want clear directions, here is an important principle, and it's simply this. Depend on the wisdom of the trusted and faithful. Depend on the wisdom of the trusted and faithful. That's what Abraham himself does. And we see the wisdom of this man. He, he, he makes a prayer to, uh, to God. And uh, you'll, you'll find very important characteristics in this. He says, verse 12, then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham. Let me just stop here for a second. Do your employees know your God? And do they know God by your lifestyle? Would your employees, your coworkers say, Oh, the God of Sam, the God of Linda. That's just an interesting note there, what they do. Uh, but that's, that's what he does. Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, here I stand by the well of water and the daughters of the men of city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that young, the one woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink, and I will give, also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Now, this appears to be like a, a fleece where we say, okay, God, this is how I know you're working. But I'm going to just uh, suggest to you that it's more than that. What he is putting out here is a test to reveal the character of the person that he wishes to have for Isaac. And so, he prays his prayer. And you'll find, verse 15, and it happened. Before he finished speaking, speaking what? Speaking in his prayer. Before he said, Amen, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Isn't that interesting? God was already providing as he was praying. Isn't it just amazing to see how God cooperates with mankind and their decisions and how he brings it together in his foreknowledge is a powerful story in, in that, that regard. Now, we we'll get hints right here. The reader understands, wow, this sounds like the one here. I mean, after all, it's related uh, directly to Abraham uh, through the brother Nahor. This has got to be one. In verse 16, now the young man was very beautiful to behold, a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And a servant ran to meet her. Now, let me just state something here. When the Bible says that someone's really pretty, they really are very pretty. The Bible doesn't say that about everybody. Uh, but it does say that about this young lady. Let me just speak about the role of beauty. America is obsessed with beauty. It is everywhere we go. And if you're not careful, you think it will be everything. Beauty has a role in attracting a person. And that's it. Did you hear what I just said? And attracting a person. It is what causes the person to look, to pursue. And so I would say, men and women, strive to look your best. Be attractive, as this woman was attractive. And she had no way of knowing that she was about to meet the, the soon-to-be ser- uh, master servant. And she was just in her day. Had a beauty about her. But it is not beauty alone. It is the character that persuades the servant. 
It is the beauty that attracts the servant, but it is the character of the woman that persuades the servant. And let me just suggest to you that our attractiveness, our beauty should be as mere decoration and that the real stuff is our character. And if we are so consumed with our beauty at the, at the risk of losing our character, we've lost it altogether. Beauty is to be like the decoration of a wedding cake. I mean, it should drive your, your, your eyes to the cake. But listen, if the cake is made of cardboard, then what's the point? You know, it should taste good too. And so that's what we've got is that the beauty should be magnifying who we are on the inside. First Peter chapter three said it in a beautiful way. God was speaking through first Peter and says to the ladies, do not let your adornment be merely outward. All right. I would say don't stop adoring. <laughs> don't stop being attractive. But don't let your life be merely that. Arranging the hair, wearing of gold, putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the gentle and quiet spirit, the very precious spirit that is incorruptible to God. In other words, that in your heart there is a trust, there is a dependence, there is a contentment found in your relationship with the Lord. You know who you are before the Lord. Let your outward just point to that. If it's not pointing to anything, it's a cardboard cake. And so it drives or gets the interest of the servant. And so he runs to meet her and says, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, well, drink, my lord. And then she quickly let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. And she quickly entered her pitcher into the trough ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. All right. I hope, if you have in your mind uh, the country well with the pitcher and the rope and the little roof over it, take it out of your mind. It's not it. We were able to see a well uh, when we were in Israel a couple years ago in uh, Megiddo, and it was amazing. It was, it was probably about 45 feet across. It's, it's a big hole in the ground, all right? And they're very deep, uh, possibly 7,500, 100 more feet deep, depending on where the water's at. And so what you've got are staircases that go around zigzagging back and forth to get down to the well. It's not just pulling the rope, all right? Uh, you're carrying gallons of water as you're walking down the stairs. All right, that's for a person, but he's camels. How many camels? Ten camels. Camels drink a lot of water, all right? Uh, let me just, uh, a camel can consume 25 gallons of water in 10 minutes. One camel, 25 gallons of water. There are 10 camels. We're looking at maybe 250 gallons of water. With a water jar holding about three gallons of water, this means that Rebecca could have made 80 to 100 descents into the well. All right? You get the idea of Pilates? No. <laughs> Not having it. All right? This is, this is much more than a stair climber. All right? Uh, this is a serious workout. I had one of my teachers in college was, was explaining this passage to us. He says, guys, you know what that means? You find a wife that's got some guns on her. You know what, what she was talking about is... Physical, it's a biceps. <laughs> I was like, whoa. You know, uh, you know, uh, you can take a little bit too little. But the idea is, find, find, you know, 
the real lesson is not finding someone necessarily in shape, but finding someone who is serving. This is serious service. I mean, this is, you know, 45th trip and you're going down and you're carrying more water and you're sweating and you're perspiring and your heart's pounding and you're thinking, oh my goodness, there's more. Why is she doing this? She's a special lady. She's a servant. She's a giver. She has hospitality. You understand what the servant was doing when he made this request? He wasn't just putting a fleece out there. He was trying to see about the character of this person. Listen. I, in premarital counseling, when I talk to couples, I tell folks one of the things toward the end is, if you will pray together, if you will pray together and worship together, and if you give, as a couple, you give. It's amazing how your marriage will continue on. Why? Is there something magic about giving? No. It's just the qualities required to be giving is selflessness. And in marriage, if you learn to be selflessness or selfless and learn to serve and learn to work and help the other person, it's amazing how marriages will work together. But if you're of the temperament where everything is about you and you're trying to find someone to serve you, guess what? You're not ready to be married. And pity the day that anyone does marry you. Be the type of person that serves. And let me just state this. Remember what I said at the beginning? What attracts someone in marriage is what you've got to keep doing to keep them in marriage. Let me just challenge us husbands and wives here. How are we serving our, our mate? Are we working hard? Is there, at the end of the day, is there sweat on our brow? Because how we have served the person that we're with. The servant has lived long enough and is wise enough to know. If a woman will do that, she'll probably be a pretty good person to marry. If you see someone and life is always about themselves, they may be attractive, they may be charismatic, but they will not be a good mate. Let them grow up. Let them grow up. And so here this woman is laboring away. Verse 21. And the men, wondering at her, remained silent so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Do you get that? You mean on the fifth you trip he didn't say anything? <laughs> he could have said something a long time ago. No, he waited till she finished. Because that also spoke something as to the character that she finished. She had no way of knowing. She was just being herself. And she finished the task. Let me just... Sherry, I heard of, of Julie, my wife, before I got to see her or meet her. Um, in college, was when we met, we were at a church together. A college minister was there. And we had a Sunday school class, a huge, about 100-some college students in our Sunday school class. And I never saw her. I was like, you know, where's this girl at? I hear about her. And, and the first time I saw her, was she was walking down the side, just like we, what we have here. And she was leaving a Sunday school class of children that she was teaching. A college student teaching the children. And she was on her way, passing through quickly to get to the orchestra practice that she was doing for the, for the worship service. I never got to meet her because she was so busy teaching and serving that she never hanged out with just us lowly college students in our class. 
But, you know, that impressed me a lot. I thought, here's someone that's a worker, that's a server. I found a way. <laughs> found a way to meet her. But that's, I just think about that and, and what attracted me to her at the very beginning. Be someone that can be a server. And so, what does he do in verse 22? So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for a wrist weighing ten shekels of gold and said, Whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? He's a giver. Guys, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to advocate. I, I'm not going to be pushing nose rings, all right? <laughs> Custom does mean something. Culture does mean something here. Uh, but there's something to be said about being a giver. Uh, ladies, go home and tell your husband, hey, you know what? This guy was a giver. What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, don't do that. But, uh, but there is something to that of being a giver and providing in this way. And so she was attracted as well to this. And so she answers, well, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, Melchi's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have, we've, we've got room, we've got straw, we can take care of you and your ten camels. And then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told her mother's household these things. And so we come to the story. Laban is a brother. Laban has evidently an eye for money. We see this later on when it comes down to Jacob. And Laban says, who gave you that? Okay, let me go get him. All right. And so he sees him and he's really nice to him. Uh, you notice he sees all the gold and he says, thus the man spoke to me. And then he went to the man and there he stood by the camels. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside for I prepared the house and place for the camels? And so they come and they eat with him. And an Abraham's servant tells him right away. He says, I don't have time to delay this. I need to tell you right away why I'm here. Now, this is his task. He knows who it is. He knows who they belong to. His job is to pry away this beautiful young daughter away from the family. <laughs> He's got some arguments to do. Okay, So what are his two arguments? Well, first, in verse 34 to 36... My master Abraham is blessed by God. Look at it. Flocks, herds, silver, gold, servants, camels, donkeys. You name it, we got it. And by the way, he's got one son, and he is the only heir of it all. And his name's Isaac, and I want to bring your wife to them. That's a pretty good argument, all right? <laughs> bring your, your, your daughter to them. Uh, you know, probably got Rachel or Rebecca's attention here. But... We go on verse 37, we find the bulk of the argument does not lie in the riches, but the bulk of the argument lies in the fact that God's hand is in this. And so he recounts the entire story for him to let the family know how God's hand is in this. And says, you know what? Yeah, we're rich. We'll take care of her. But, you know, even more so, God wants her. And here's how I know that God wants her. And so they hear this story. And verse 50 Laban and Bethuel answered and said, the thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you either bad or good. In other words, it's obvious God's hand in it, and who are we to say no? Here's Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And then they want her to stay ten days, and uh, Abraham's servant says, no, we've got to go now. We've got to take care of this now, the next morning. And, and so they ask her, do you want to go? And she says, I will go. I'll leave. Let me just state something here. In marriage, there needs to be a separation from your parents. 
And parents, when you have children that marry, you need to let them go. Let them go. She was leaving them. That was it. Bye-bye. She wouldn't see them again. Um, you know, when we, when we have a marriage, one of the first things we do is the, is the guardian, usually the father, will come and take the bride down. And, and the, the pastor asks, who gives this woman to be this, uh, this, this wife of this man? And, and the guardian will say, her mother and I. What do they do after that? They sit down. That's it. That's the end of the ceremony for you. If you have a tendency to keep meddling in your children's lives, you need to sit down. You are hurting their marriage. And if you, as a husband or as a wife, keep coming and seeking the counsel of your parents over your mates, you need to leave. You need to get away from them. There needs to be a a leaving from the father and mother and a cleaving to one another as given to us in the very first chapters of Genesis. And so there's a leaving that takes place. And so they they start their journey back. Notice there's a blessing that the family of Rebekah gives in verse 60. They blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands. May your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. It sounds very similar to the very promises and blessings God gave Abraham. And Isaac. And so they left months, hundreds of miles. Can you imagine what that trip would have been like? What Rebecca would have been talking about, what the maids would have been talking about, talking to the master and say, Tell me again. How many camels? <laughs> how many how many goats? How much gold? And 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 he's really the only heir, he's the soy, all that's and Isaac and, and what does he look like? And, and what kind of man is he? Can you imagine the conversation? The poor servant must have been tired. You know, I've, I've talked about this already. Really, we have to talk about it again, you know. And, and this, you can imagine how that journey must have been like. And then we come, verse 62. Isaac came from the way of Be'er Leheroi. This is the very well where Ishmael and Hagar went to when she was afraid of her life. And she saw that God saw her. And she said, this is God, the God who sees. And the well is named after the God who sees. Isaac's there by the well where God is watching And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. What do you think he's meditating about? (laughs) It's been months now. It's been months now, and and, and the servant is out to bring a wife, and life is about to change. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. He lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when he saw Isaac, she dismounted from a camel, for she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. So she took a bell and covered herself. And all the servants told Isaac all the things that he'd done. In other words, Isaac, this is God's choice. I've seen how God works. Here's how you know God's been at work. Then Isaac brought her into this, his mother's Sarah's tent. And he took Rebekah and she became his wife. And he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. This is a love story. But you don't have the word love to right there at the end. And he loved her after he married her. Never even met her before. Let me just state this. Let your emotions follow God's direction. Let your emotions follow God's direction. Sometimes, if you're not careful, we'll get all Googled about a person or about something. 
Guys, I know we do this at the store and we think, oh man, that would be really great. You know, and we need to stop every once in a while and step back and seek counsel besides the salesperson. I seek some counsel and just let God direct and not let our emotions get into it. In America, this store is very foreign. In America, we have a way of, of marrying that, uh, it's just American. It's not biblical. It's not anything. It's just American, all right? And it's amazing to me that we'll let uh, couples go out, young folks go out, and, and in their emotional sense and their hormonal sense, and, and they see someone who puts up a facade of holiness just long enough for them to be attracted to them, and their emotions get all into it, and they can't think clearly. Next thing you know, they're married. Oh, that sounds like a great system. Please. If someone would like to argue that system, I'd love to hear the virtues of it. Maybe we have such a wonderful track record of our marriages to say, oh, this is the right way to do it. I personally don't like dating, but that's my personal opinion. And I'm not speaking of the Bible, because the simple matter of the fact is, is that the Bible just doesn't give necessarily specifics. It gives you principles. But I would say... Observation is huge. Seeking the counsel of those who you trust and who are faithful is huge. Letting God direct instead of your emotions is huge. I don't necessarily see how dating in America fits all those principles. But nonetheless, that's how we tend to operate. But you know, besides all that, there's another beautiful story. You know, Ephesians 5 tells us that marriages are to be as, uh, an expression of the love between God the Father and God the Son and the church. That marriages are to be a message to reflect that relationship. Ephesians 5 says very clearly how, how the Christ is the, is the groom and the church is the bride. But let me just share with you this story in that vein. The Father has a son. And he needs a bride. God the Father needs a bride for God the Son. He sends the messenger out to find someone who is willing to come. And so too the messengers have come out and spoken and preached throughout history and says there is a God who loves you. Will anyone leave their world and take up the world of the groom? And you, as the potential bride, might be asking, well, what is this groom like? Oh, and the messenger would say to you, oh, our groom. Our groom, you need to know that the Father is a heavenly Father and that there are riches untold that belong to Him and that there is one Son and that He is the sole heir of all the riches of God the Father and all that is beautiful is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. All that has been made has been made for Jesus Christ. He is the author and the finisher. He is the Lamb. He is the bright and morning star. He is that which everyone adores and worships. That is the groom. Will you leave your land and take the land of the groom. Will anyone here say, I will? <laughs> it's a beautiful message. There is a message of marriage here, is a message of seeking God's direction and knowing how to get God's direction and finding the mate, but even more so, there is a larger message of God's love for you 
Will you be the one that says, I do, Jesus. I do. I make you king. Let's pray.